Hey, it's Rebecca Lieb. And I'm Jason Horton. And we are Ghost Town, a show about weird history, hauntings, unexplained events, true crime, and all kinds of bizarre phenomenon the world over. From unsolved murders to haunted manners. Satanic panic to internet mysteries. Buy a ticket to our abandoned amusement park. A VIP ghost pass to our haunted club? No. Bottle service. We have new episodes of Ghost Town every Wednesday and Friday, and you can find Ghost Town wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, I'm Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. I'm glad you made it back for part two of The Werewolf of Wisteria. So, I don't have a huge listener base yet. Notice my hopeful enthusiasm. But one of my first listeners, my wonderful, handsome, amazing husband, said that part one was rough. He then went on to inform me that he didn't think he'd be listening to part two. He might be handsome and amazing, but he's a wimp. I did offer the warning at the beginning of part one that you shouldn't listen on a full stomach, and it won't be much different for part two. So let's just butter that biscuit and dive on in. Dr. Frederick Wortham, in his book, The Show of Violence, describes his first meeting with Albert Fish in jail. He was surprised at how meek, gentle, benevolent, and polite Fish came across. It seems that Fish's attitude of his current situation was pretty lukewarm. He said, quote, I have no particular desire to live. I have no particular desire to be killed. It is a matter of indifference to me. I do not think I am altogether right. We know, looking back, he definitely was not right. The confession that Albert made was heard by different people, including various law enforcement entities and psychiatrists, which, by the way, are called alienists at the time. Some parts of the confession would be published in the newspapers. Those who heard his confessions found them hard to believe because of the perversity of the things he was confessing to. Though, as more and more details are corroborated, it becomes much more believable that this 5'5", 130-pound, frail old man could do such things. It was Detective King who was on the receiving end of that first confession. Albert claims he was overcome by what he referred to as bloodthirst in the summer of 1928. It was that desire to kill, or that thirst, that had led him to answer Edward Budd's ad. He was fully intending to take the boy to some isolated location to torture and kill, mainly by cutting off the young man's penis and leaving him to bleed to death. It ended up being Grace, who he focused that bloodthirst on. In the last episode, we discussed the letter that he wrote detailing what he did to Grace. What he didn't spell out in that letter, but admitted to, was that after killing her, he put her head on a paint can and decapitated her. He used the paint can to collect the blood. He threw the blood into the yard, undressed the headless little girl, and cut her body in half. He took parts of her, wrapped in newspaper with him when he left. A few days later, he went back to the wisteria cottage and threw the remaining parts of her body over the stone wall in the backyard. He also confessed to discarding the butcher's knife and the cleaver in the same way. 
Now, if you remember, he had taken those items with him, wrapped in paper, hid them at a newspaper stand, and went back to get them after he had abducted Grace. He almost left them on the train, but Grace reminded him to get his package. So after he tells Detective King this, the detective asks him why he would do this horrible thing. Fisher's reply, you know, I never could account for it. Another official would ask him why he wrote the letter to the Buds. His response to that was, I just had a mania for writing. So at this point, it's just things that Albert is saying he did. Other than he wrote the letter, they confirmed the handwriting. They don't know that what he claims he did to Grace was actually done. But after he's arrested, the police do go to the Wisteria Cottage. They are able to recover Grace's remains. Albert is with them, and he stands by stone-faced while they recover these remains. Later that evening, while being questioned by an assistant district attorney, Albert claims he was overcome with sorrow after he'd killed her. When he was asked if he had raped Grace, Albert was very decisive in the answer that it had never entered his head. But we remember in the letter, he said he could have had he wanted to. Initially, he wasn't questioned about the cannibalism aspect of his letter. Why didn't the police question him? I'm guessing it's that they couldn't bring themselves to believe he'd actually done it. I bet they were thinking it is the ravings of a madman. So that same evening that Fish was arrested, Detective King went to the Bud home and brought Mr. Bud and Edward back to the police station so that they could identify Albert. When they get there, Edward does not remain calm. He sees Albert and he lunges at him, yelling obscenities at Albert. Apparently, Albert did not have much of a reaction to this. He just kind of sits there. Mr. Bud thinks maybe Albert doesn't recognize him, so he asks if Albert knows who he is. Albert calmly replies, yes, you're Mr. Bud. Reportedly, Mr. Bud's response was, quote, and you're the man who came to my home as a guest and took my little girl away. Back in part one, we talked about a larceny charge that landed Albert in Sing Sing. But he had other run-ins with law enforcement. After the larceny arrest, he had been arrested six other times for things like petty theft and writing obscene letters. Do we remember talking about him answering personal ads with obscene responses? Yes, we do. But he was 12 when he did that. Obviously, he kept at it. So while Fish is facing a first-degree murder charge in Westchester County, Manhattan is busy preparing an indictment for kidnapping. Major break had come during this period when a motorman for the Brooklyn Trolley saw a picture in the newspaper. This picture had a face he recognized. He told police that Albert Fish was an old man that he had saw back in February of 1927. He had had a little boy with him who was crying and begging for his mother. Albert had been trying to quiet the boy. The trolleyman also mentions that the little boy had on no jacket or coat, which, considering it is February in New York, that would have been odd. The old man had to drag the crying boy off of the trolley. If you listen to part one, you are probably guessing that that little boy is Billy Gaffney, and you would be right. 
Now here comes the rough part that I had warned you about at the end of the last episode. What he does to Billy Gaffney, if you can imagine, is worse than what he did to Grace. So forewarned. Albert confesses to what he did to Billy Gaffney. He took four-year-old Billy to an abandoned house near the Riker Avenue dump. He took Billy's clothes off, then he tied Billy's hands and feet and gagged him with a dirty rag he'd plucked out of the dump. He burnt the boy's clothes and threw Billy's shoes into the dump. Albert then takes the 2 a.m. trolley back, leaving the little boy alone. Twelve hours later, at 2 p.m. the next day, he takes tools and something else. Something horrible that Albert had made himself. It is a cat of nine tails he constructed out of a belt that he cut into six strips. Albert used that to whip Billy's backside until he bled. He then cut off the boy's ears, nose, and split the boy's mouth from ear to ear. He also gouged out Billy's eyes. He says at this point, the boy is dead. Now, I don't know if he meant what he did to the boy occurred when the boy was dead or if he did these things to the boy while he was alive. After the boy is dead, he says he plunged a knife into the Billy's belly and held his mouth there so he could drink the boy's blood. He used four potato sacks and some stones, plus a bag, to handle the boy's body. He put the nose, ears, and a few slices of the belly into the bag. He cut the boy in half, just below the belly button. And then he cut through the legs, a couple of inches below his behind. He wrapped this in paper and put it into the bag as well. He then cut off the head, feet, arms, hands, and the legs below the knee. These he put into the potato sacks with the stones, tied them up, and threw them into the stagnant water along the road. He then goes on in nauseating detail to explain how he cooked various parts of Billy. I will not read that to you. After Albert's picture is out there, a man from Staten Island identifies Albert as someone who tried to lure his eight-year-old daughter into the woods. And where might this attempt have occurred? Well, it wasn't all that far from where Francis O'Donnell would be murdered, Three days later, the girl he'd attempted to snatch identified him, and the police now knew for sure that they had found the gray man that had been following Francis O'Donnell. It turns out that there is also a connection between Albert and the 1932 murder of a 15-year-old named Mary O'Connor. Her mauled body had been found in some woods that wasn't too far from a house that Fish was painting at the time. With all of these indictments against him, in several counties, it doesn't seem likely that Albert is going to be acquitted. That means the only chance his defense would have to avoid the death penalty was, of course, to have him declared insane. Now enter the alienist and forensic psychiatrists. Earlier, we talked about how Dr. Wortham mentioned that Fish appeared gentle, benevolent, polite. He even went on to say that he could see how someone would entrust their child to Albert due to the way that he came across. Albert himself had kind of a rather distant attitude about the situation he found himself in, as in facing the death penalty for his crimes. That is when he made the statement that he didn't have a desire to live or die and that he wasn't altogether right. 
When the doctor asked him if that meant he thought himself to be insane, Albert's response was, quote, not exactly. I never could understand myself. I had mentioned earlier that mental illness seemed to kind of run in the Fish family history. An uncle on his father's side had suffered from religious psychosis and passed away in a mental hospital. Albert had a half-brother that also died in a mental institution. There was a brother who was labeled feeble-minded and suffered from hydrocephalus. An aunt, also on his father's side, was labeled completely crazy. His mother was called, quote, very queer and reportedly saw and heard things that weren't there. There was also a brother with chronic alcoholism and a sister with some unidentified mental affliction. Dr. Wortham remarks on Albert's unique perversity as it applied to psychiatrists and criminal literature of the time. He said that Albert's sadomasochism, being directed against children, mostly boys, was the main factor in his regressive sexual development. He says that Fish told him, quote, I always had a desire to inflict pain on others and to have others inflict pain on me. I always seemed to enjoy everything that hurt. Albert told a doctor that he preyed on at least a hundred children, not necessarily killed, but molested or harmed. He'd use money or candy to lure them, and he never went back to the same neighborhood twice. He claims he lived in at least 23 states, and that he had killed at least one child in each of those. He often lost his job, usually as a house painter, because he was always under suspicion. Why? Because dead or mutilated children kept turning up in the places he worked. He also, as we already know, confessed to enjoying the writing of obscene letters. Dr. Wortham wasn't convinced that Fish was being honest about a lot of things. One in particular was Fish's claim that he liked sticking needles into his body between the scrotum and rectum. He claimed that initially he would just stick them in and pull them right back out. Eventually, though, he'd stuck some of them in too far and couldn't get them back out. Dr. Wortham, wondering if this is true, had Albert x-rayed. And that x-ray showed at least 29 needles in the pelvic region of Albert Fish's body. Albert claimed that around the age of 55, he started to have hallucinations. He claimed to have visions of Christ and angels. He thought he could purge himself of sin by physical suffering and by torturing himself. He also thought that if he offered up human sacrifices, that would benefit him. He would quote things from the Bible, but he often mixed in his own twisted thoughts and what came out were not biblical at all. One example is this, and this is a direct quote. Happy is he that take thy little ones and dasheth their heads against the stones. Fish would claim that God told him to castrate little boys. When listening to Albert describe the cannibalism of Billy Gaffney, Dr. Wortham said that the state of mind that Albert was in while describing these things was peculiar. He said it very matter-of-fact, like somebody describing a recipe or a favorite way to cook a meal. But then at times, his facial expressions and the sound of his voice portrayed satisfaction and a kind of ecstatic thrill. That's paraphrased. What Dr. Wortham did say is this, quote, I said to myself, however you define the medical and legal borders of sanity, this certainly is beyond that border. 
Dr. Wortham believed that Albert did suffer from some kind of religious psychosis. This is witnessed by the fact that Albert's own children saw him many times hitting himself with nail-studded paddles. They also say they saw him standing alone on a hill with outstretched arms yelling, I am Christ. Dr. Wortham truly believed that Albert was legally insane. He also believed that Albert had probably killed 15 children and mutilated about 100 others. He claimed that figure was verified by police officials in later years. Along with Dr. Wortham, there were two other defense alienists that also testified that Albert was insane. However, the four alienists that were called by the prosecution, no surprise here, all said he was sane. One of those alienists was the head of the psychiatric hospital where Fish had been observed a couple of years after the Bud murder, but before he sent the letter, which, remember, was six years after Grace had vanished. At that time, the alienist claimed Albert was harmless and sane. Now, I have to say, it would seem to serve a purpose for the head of a hospital that released this monster, claiming he was harmless, to stand behind that. I'd imagine it'd be a bit embarrassing to now have to say he is insane after you already said he wasn't, but who knows. Chief Assistant District Attorney Albert Gallagher was in charge of the prosecution, and James Dempsey was the defense attorney. Dempsey's plan was to go after the Bellevue Hospital alienist who observed Albert in 1930 and declared him sane. He was also going to use the defense of lead colic, which apparently was a thing back then. It was a kind of dementia that house painters often ended up with due to the lead and paint. Gallagher, for the prosecution, had a goal. And that goal was to prove that Albert was legally sane and that he knew the difference between right and wrong. Albert had an excellent memory and was not mentally defective. That's what he wanted to prove. He wanted to drive home the point that Albert was medically considered a sex psychopath and a sex pervert, and that while these things that he did were abnormal, he was not insane. An insane person wouldn't have planned out the kidnapping of Grace so thoroughly as in wrapping up his kill tools and stashing them in a newspaper stand to retrieve once he had the child. Now, I get that everyone is entitled to a defense, but some people are so out there, it's hard for me to imagine anyone wanting to defend them. That is why I am not a defense attorney. But in fairness, I will present the defense's side. Dempsey wanted to focus on Albert's life, and he brought up the self-flagellation and the needle sticking. He then contrasted that to the kind of father Albert allegedly was. He was, by all appearances, a competent father who loved his children. Going to make a little side note here. Remember, this competent, loving father would also have his children hit him with the nail-studded paddle, which doesn't seem particularly competent or loving to me. And shortly, you'll hear about a little game. He liked to play with his children. Dempsey went on to say that Albert had never put a hand on any of his own children. He ate every meal with the kids while they were growing up. I guess his defense is basically summed up as this. So this guy is a good dad and raised his six children alone after his wife left. He took good care of them. He never hurt them. He, however, likes to torture and eat other people's children. Obviously, he's insane. 
so I'm oversimplifying, but you get the gist. Dempsey, in my mind, is kind of a jerk, though. Why, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you. Because he puts Mr. and Mrs. Bud, along with Edward, on the stand and makes them admit to allowing Grace to go with him. Mr. Bud becomes so emotionally overwrought during this that he is weeping loudly. On day three of the trial, with vehement objections from the defense, a box of Grace Bud's remains were brought into the courtroom as evidence. Detective King recounted what was done to Grace, based on Albert's confession. At the end of it, Chief Assistant DA Albert Gallagher reached into the box and then held out that small skull of the dead child. Dempsey, for the defense, of course objected to this dramatic moment and asked for mistrial. He lost that objection. I say good. Dempsey wanted to focus the attention on the cannibalism because he thought that was the key to the insanity defense. Now, Dempsey wants the court to believe that Albert really did eat parts of the girl, which, mind you, they hadn't proven that, just that he murdered the girl. And he wanted the court to believe that Albert had eaten Grace because sane people wouldn't do that. While all of this is going on, Albert is just sitting there, all stoic, unmoved by what is happening. At one point, he tells his attorney he wants to live because, quote, God still has work for me to do. Dempsey went so far as to put Albert's kids on the stand. They verified that he did like to self-flagellate and stick needles into himself. They confirmed his religious delusions, but they also told the court he was a good dad that provided for them, and they all said he never physically abused any of them. Now, hold on to your brains for a minute and listen to this little tale. As testified to by Mary Nichols, who was Albert's 17-year-old stepdaughter. There was this little game that they would play with Dad, a.k.a. Albert. He would go put on a pair of brown shorts and then come out to the front room and get on his hands and knees. The kids were given a paint stick, and one of them would sit on his back. They'd take turns, and they would sit with their backs towards his head, facing the opposite direction. The child on his back would then put up a certain number of fingers, and Albert would guess how many fingers they were holding up. If he was right, which according to Mary he never was, the kids would not get to hit him. If he was wrong, which he always was, they would get to hit him with a paint stick. The number of times would be however many fingers they had been holding up. Sometimes, to switch things up, they would use a hairbrush instead of a paint stick. This does not sound like the kind of game normal fathers play with their children, which is probably why Dempsey offered this up in Albert's defense. Mary also testified that Albert would stick pins under his fingernails in front of the kids. So now we must ask ourselves, does this signify insanity? I would say it signifies that Albert had some serious issues and that Albert liked pain. I go so far as to say he had a mental illness, but that does not mean the same thing as legally insane. There is a difference. The defense tried to use his enjoyment of eating feces as another sign, asking a prosecution alienist, tell me how many cases in your experience you have seen people who actually ate human feces. I love Lambert's response. 
He said, quote, Oh, I know individuals prominent in society, one in particular that we all know, who used it as a side in his salad. Now, I don't know if it's true or not, but the casual way he says it, I say bravo. So this trial, it lasted for 11 days. Albert was found guilty and sentenced to death by electrocution. Albert wasn't necessarily happy with the verdict, but apparently the prospect of being electrocuted appealed to him, as you will see in just a second. Albert thanked the judge for the sentence of death. On January 16, 1936, Albert Fish was to be executed. Albert assisted the executioner in putting the electrodes onto his body. Fish said himself that, quote, What a thrill that will be if I have to die in the electric chair. It will be the supreme thrill, the only one I haven't tried. After Fish was put to death, his lawyer said that Fish's final words were actually in a series of handwritten notes. He would not read them. He said, I will never show it to anyone. It was the most filthy string of obscenities I have ever read. And that, my friends, is the tale of Albert Fish. I hope you stuck with me until the end, unlike my husband. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm Crime Biscuit. If you want to send me a Gmail, it's acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook, Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast. And here's your final crumb. Everyone has their own likes and dislikes. You do you. But if I might suggest, croutons are a better side on salad than excrement. Thanks for joining me. Bye.